Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley. I'm here with Mike Mitchell. And this week's segment, we're going to feature top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of October 10th. Mike, why don't you take it away? Yep. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Hope you're having a good week so far. Um, so we're gonna get this off with an article centered around uh, caffeine service, allowing people to launch uh, Officer 65 phishing attacks. So this is getting into the kind of the malware as a service, uh, phishing as a service, um, basically organizations productizing the ability to um, attack individuals, enterprises, organizations, and monetizing off of that. So um, within this article, it's talking, but this is specifically around Microsoft 365 uh, templates and phishing campaigns. Um, but in the article is really interesting is that they've put a lot of development effort into this. Um, they have a store, a marketplace. Um, they have templates that you can you know, purchase. They have built-in uh, 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 senders for email on the campaigns. They track the templates, they track the credentials stored. Um, so they're putting a lot of time and effort to productize this capability. Um, and these still are centered towards enterprises, but um, I can really see this opening up for, uh, call it B2C, so to consumers, right? So imagine them opening up templates for Gmail uh, campaigns, um, uh, you know, personal email, if anybody's still using Hotmail or Yahoo Mail or AOL Mail, right? But like it's getting into the actual individual. So the money that is to be made is really on the enterprise side, but this is really an interesting space that, um, you know, these these actors are starting to open up. Uh, so with that, we, or excuse me, Scott, any comments? <laughs> yeah, so um, the one thing I thought was interesting was the, the price of entry, right? It was really easy to sign up, but there was no verification you really had to provide. And then for one month of service, it was like 250 bucks. So, so that was, you know, I think very affordable for your lower tier. People just want to get into that. Hey, I think that, you know, cyber criminal activity is an interesting thing to try. Um, Cause one is one of the more successful avenues um, as well as it seems like the point of entry is really brings that very low. Um, but looking at some of the stuff I did find where Mandy had kind of did a write up as well on, on the caffeine service. And they had some interesting things to say. They produced some pretty good artifacts all around kind of the Yara signature stuff, but dealt with a lot of MD5 with some of the expected things that would be pulled down from um, the different phishing websites. So, I mean, good for that. Like if there's a point of entry, low level person using this, they're probably gonna use a lot of default configurations. Great. Um, seems like they'd also be pretty easy to sidestep. Uh, but they, the one thing I was curious was, you know, if more people were leveraging, you know, DKIM or SPF for their mail senders, mm -hmm. um, DKIM being, you know, the digital signature that's in the header of the email that, you know, basically validates that it was sent by, you know, that organization or the SPF, which is really a way for people to have only authorized mail servers that right. can send their mail, right? 
Um, I wonder if that can affect some things because I didn't. I was trying to dig in to see if they did a lot of spoofing or if they just spun up sure. their own kind of domains. I know they kind of ran their own like uh, PHP or Python-based webmail service yep. um, to do a lot of their stuff. But uh, the one call out, which you know, I I know isn't necessarily easy, um, that Mandy kind of had was you know one was a two-factor, right? Since it's really focusing on credential theft, you know, there wasn't really a payload delivery. It was more about trying to trick people to give their credentials. So obviously those accounts, especially, you know, they're talking about Microsoft, you know, 365. Um, Two-factor would be a good control just to help protect even if people give up their passwords or not giving up everything. Um, right. And then the analysis. So they talked about really looking at the URL structure combined with form submission and redirections. So, you know, looking at network traffic where you, you can see some unique URL structure syntax, knowing that there's some form submission or post and then redirections. Um, you know, that's kind of common with a lot of login pages though. So I didn't know exactly what they meant by that. They provided no examples, but obviously they're kind of looking at that specific um, behavior, so to speak. So mm -hmm. may, maybe there's some analytics that, you know, help with that, but um, it was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the fact that the, I mean, they're, they're building these templates, right? So, I mean, that's a really good place to look from an IFC perspective if there's some reuse um, on those templates that you're allowing to, to potentially utilize. The crazy thing is at their enterprise pricing, they offer support, right? So, I mean, it's, it seems like a crazy service. Uh, and the website itself, I guess, is still live. Um, I don't know if there's any takedowns that are happening right now. Um, I don't know if they're marketing this as just like a pen testing tool potentially to get around the fact that, you know, it's it might not be just a fully malicious service as something that you can use for internal penetration testing. Um, so it's interesting to see this progress, see how this, this gets tracked, if it gets taken down. Um, but from a developer perspective and the people who built this, it'd be interesting to see if they have access to all the credentials stored on these campaigns. So it's an amazing oh, yeah. way to allow other people to do the work for you. And then they can just pull that from the database and use that information for higher level enterprise type campaigns, knowing that, hey, these people have actually clicked these buttons and typed in their passwords. Now let's step it up a notch and actually go after them, right? So it, it's it's gonna be interesting to see if this is opens up that, that you know. That yeah, never thought of that like outsourcing labor perspective. That's that's kind of a good one, yeah. especially when it's a service that's not like a fully professionalized vetted company type service. It's just a mm -hmm. hey, it showed up on the web or the underground. You should check it out. Yep, absolutely. So, um, Scott, you want to move on to the next yeah. one? So the next one's interesting. Um, it's a bleeping computer article that kind of I, I pivoted from to some other things, but. Um, it's hundreds of Microsoft SQL servers backdoored with new malware. Um, this was interesting to me just because I don't commonly look at Microsoft SQL servers. You know, um, obviously databases are a, a good target in general. Um, but you know, the the malware that was discovered was called was called the Maggie malware, right? And um, it did some interesting and interesting things. It basically added a lot of capabilities where people were able to run SQL commands based on you know, extended procedures that were installed in this back door to do all sorts of nefarious things that you would see from like a post-exploitation um, perspective. But um, it was just interesting to me because of you know, the whole point of them installing this extended stored procedures and how you actually have some visibility to that. So 
Um, I kind of pivoted into, you know, uh, the originals researchers post that found this. Yep. Uh, and they were talking about some of the defensive measures. Um, and one of them was, you know, from, you know, Microsoft's, you know, SQL, you can actually run, it's, you know, it's a command that's SP underscore help extended P-R-O-C. Um, and it will list out all the extended procedures that are installed. And then okay. you can actually search for Maggie. I mean, of course, they could change the name of the malware, but that was an easy way to, because sure. it calls itself Maggie. That's why it got the name, right? Um, so that was kind of interesting, like from just a, you know, if I'm a DB admin way to like, just look and to kind of audit myself for that. Right. But there also were specific Windows events um, that get generated. So, you know, I, I am very, it's very common for me to dig into Windows events because it's kind of where we, we live in the data. Yep. But I don't dig into the application logs of Microsoft SQL. So, you know, I'm sure. not familiar with those event IDs as much, but they have their own in the application log itself, their own, you know, events they generate. And one of the key ones to really look for um, is uh, event ID 8128. Um, and it basically is a message that will tell you that this, you know, extended stuff has been loaded in. Um, and if the message contains Maggie in this instance, because it'll call out whatever extended service is loaded, it directly keys off of this. So you see that event log and you see Maggie in the message, you pretty much know you've got it. Um, right. But obviously if they change that name, you know, to try to open up to more general kind of hunt for this or these types of behaviors, you're kind of looking for that event ID and names that you don't expect to show up from default. Um, sure. You know, your default packages, so to speak. So you can kind of rule right. those out. Um, and then they also mentioned um, another event ID that was uh, 33090, so 33090. And that's kind of mm -hmm. similar to like the image loaded events for Sysmon. Um, okay. It wasn't as descriptive. It was just like a, hey, I guess if you see the 8128 and then you see this following it, you know it loaded a bunch of like modules kind of, kind of, so to speak. Right, right, right. Um, so, but there, but that event didn't have a lot of detail. I just know that it's, it shows up when this malware hits essentially. Sure. Um, yeah. And then depending on the application and the use of SQL for the application that it's exposed to, um, they did mention that, you know, there's a TCP redirect. Um, that's oh, yeah. built in backdoor. So again, just looking at anomalous traffic, um, not necessarily uh, malicious IPs, but understanding that this SQL server is typically trying to talk to other applications uh, specific to the app that it's exposed to. So if you have an anomalous traffic based on those SOC5 connections, SOC5 connections, that could be a, a pretty interesting indicator to, to see, okay, something else is connecting to this database that has never connected to this database. Um, right. And then, you know, using Shodan, I looked it up. There's 602,000 open SQL databases right now. It's tracked, right? So um, it, it's something to protect from an engineering standpoint and a, a dev, DevSec security, uh, you know, standpoint. But uh, if you have to expose your SQL database, uh, you should be probably tracking this, right? Yeah. <laughs> It's it's good to understand your your kind of enclave in the areas of infection. Well, so. some of the the other things I thought were interesting too. You know, they 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 made a call out that if it you know when it compromised the SQL Server, if it compromised um, an admin account, one of the first things it does is it creates a backup account. You know, because it mm -hmm. has that privileges. So if you were just looking at recent accounts created, um, you yeah. can you can kind of you know pivot to something like that. Also, it does a 
a backdoor database. So it makes like a hidden database in the database. And, you know, there's that screenshot right. of like all these commands, right, um, that were included in that article. And my curiosity was, was I'm assuming that's the back, you know, the hidden backdoor database. But they also mentioned that this SQL or the commands being run by the malware were SQL commands. So I'm assuming the, the keywords or the commands in that list or mm-hmm. one things you could look for in your logs if you're actually, you know, doing logging on specific, you know, queries and things being run against the database. I know sure. sometimes that's taxing depending on the purpose. So that was something else. And then th- there was mention of Sysmon. And I don't know a lot of people probably don't run Sysmon, you know, on these types of servers. Right. But, you know, the cool thing about Sysmon is you can configure how it logs. So you can not have it as verbose as, say, you would on an endpoint. But there were some key things they called out, and one was the event ID seven, which is the image load, image loaded. Um, it's kind of similar to that that three three zero nine zero. And basically, just make the configuration. You know, anything that ends with the SQL SERVR, so kind of SQL Server.exe, mm-hmm. that'll tell you anything that that executable loads, which will be insightful to what's being loaded, and it's not coming from the program's file sure. database or location. It's suspicious because that's where all the extended processes are located. So based on just directories or where things are loaded from, you can really rule out um, what's normal and what's not. Um, and then same thing when it was doing those commands um, where mm-hmm. it was doing like the low bin executions, like who am I or pings or whatever it is. Right. Um, they were being executed from that same process in event ID one. So that was the parent process of all the commands. Like if you saw from any other type of, you know, uh, I guess execution. Uh, that was an easy, easy thing to say. Well, normally this, you know, SQL process doesn't kick off any of these other things. It should be pretty obvious too. So sure. it seems like there's a lot of ways to hunt for this. Um, right. I, I feel like there's a lot of exposure based on what you saw in Shodan. So that's kind of why it's yeah. it's so prevalent. Um, <laughs> oh. But it was just interesting because I've never looked at these types of things before. Yeah, and something else that's interesting if you talk about proactive uh, uh, security, right? So mm-hmm. one of the things you can do is if you have a nomenclature defined for your user accounts, you could set up yeah. rules saying, look, if anything's created outside of this, uh, this like nomenclature or standard kind of naming convention, you could flag. So the same thing with the database. So I'm sure that Maggie, as you're creating that backdoor database is probably not, uh, you know, tracking what you're using from a nomenclature for a database right. structure. Um, so that could be something else you could flag ahead of time just to have a proactive alert based on any type of that, any type of access on those databases. So, yeah, good call. Yeah. So, yeah, I think um, that we covered that pretty well. You want to take the next? Sure. Uh, so this is an article in Hacker News talking about Fortinet of another active exploitation. Um, so Fortinet issued another CVE, uh, CVE 20224684. Uh, pretty high score of a 9.6, but it's an application bypass against the operating system, um, their proxy, and their switch manager. So it could allow remote unauthorized operations um, via HTTP requests. Um, and so they did release, uh, you know, an indicator of a compromise based on the logging that is user equals local process access. Um, but they're still advising that you patch. Uh, And one of the other interesting things is there's an update to this article that CISA said that all government agencies have to apply the patch by November 1st. Um, And they're gonna release the proof of concept. 
So that's important for organizations like us to understand the, the efficacy of that actual CVE and the attack framework, but um, it also allows organizations like federal agencies and other businesses to uh, potentially test against that proof of concept to see how they're exploitable. Um, so uh, another CVE, another note is that this is not their only one. They're actually listed on the top exploited vulnerabilities over the past couple of years. Um, and so, you know, that's a, it's, it's interesting that Fortinet is being exploited in this manner again. Um, to my knowledge, they're typically deployed in small to medium-sized businesses. I don't know major large enterprise organizations that use Fortinet. I think they do a really good job of building out kind of a, a sock in the box type approach where you buy their solution for all things security on the edge. Um, but it does open up a lot of exposure. And I can only imagine that these small to medium businesses are now running around with their hair on fire with their one or two engineers or their couple of analysts trying to understand how to approach um, and mitigate the situation. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say, you know, with, with Cease throwing it out there, at least you know there's enough important names that uh, mm -hmm. are using this likely. Um, but, you know, when you mentioned the, you know, Fortinet was hit with, you know, that stuff before where it's been actively in, in the, I think that was like a VPN bug, right? That allowed yeah. people to get the remote access. And so, um, you know, these are usually pretty easily patched once you know, those things, you know, go live. Um, but it's just when people don't take that or make that a priority, especially for something that's, you know, closer to the edge, you know, that makes a lot more sense to put a bigger priority or have a, a, a better SLA for those types of patching. Um, and then being aware where those things are is important. But um, even even if like say you don't patch, one of the things that I know that you know is common recommendations that I've seen um, even from Fortinet themselves was I mean obviously if you're not using the you know the web admin interface you just disable it right. But I think right. nowadays most most firewalls and things that web interface is kind of the common way a lot of people manage it. Um, mm -hmm. But they had a way where you know limit your IP addresses that can access it right. So. You know, for them to, for you to do that in a Fortinet, you basically create your allowed address group or list. Um, yep. your, your, your allowed, the group that's supposed to be associated with that. And then you basically apply that in the local policy um, for those predefined groups. That and, should be, you know, that's, to that point real quick, that should be just best practice. That should be right. kind of in the onboarding process of turning this on um, or finishing up the, the installation of the product. Um, yeah, yeah, keep going, sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's and that's that's what's interesting is like you know people are seeing this actively being exploited, and I don't think it's really a poor management of how people are running the product. It's just how it was set up, right? Because theoretically, I'd feel like what we say is best practice for limiting who can access it or disabling a service you're not using, but that's probably not the case. But limiting that access would probably mean that not many people would be exploiting this as much as it is to scare people to make it a big deal. Right. Yeah. Um, yep. So, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, it's, you should have a strategy for how you manage things, especially things that are critical to how things work or how, you know, how you secure your environment. So, yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw out a, an interesting idea. Should we have like a cybersecurity punch card, like 10 CVEs and you, you lose your, your uh, contracts. Right. So, I mean, there has to be some onus on these organizations to build in best practices. Um, if I would imagine if these type of organizations are 
security products in general have multiple CVEs over the course of years that there should be some oversight. Maybe there should be some review or an organization that comes in. I don't know if it's governmental or it seems like a really interesting idea just to have kind of a default uh, DevSec group come in and, and work through some of these issues, right? So maybe we should come up with the punch guard and have it on the podcast where we mark down every time we talk about an organization and have like a little scratch pad or something. You know, something I think would be great. And I know I'm now getting a little more off topic, but I feel like a lot of times when people don't address these issues quickly, like the, when they have the lingering CVs, mm-hmm. it's because they don't have a good dev environment. And I feel like some owners can be put on the vendors where if you have a big enough customer that's going to have enough of your stuff that's critical to their, you know, they should provide available hardware and things to help them test and vet those things at a, at a really, really affordable, if not, you know, just part of the contract cost. Because sure. the only thing, the only thing they're doing is when companies get hit because they have their products, it, it tarnishes their brand, right? People see Fortinet in the news and they're thinking, oh, maybe I don't want Fortinet. Look, look what risk they brought to the organization versus the organization felt comfortable to be able to test configurations easier and better and possibly even be able to test patching faster to get those things deployed. Now the company looks good because if they say they have vulnerabilities, they can say, but look what we do for our customers as well. And I think. Yeah, I'd be curious to see if the correlation between CVEs and and growth for like cybersecurity vendors, right? That's true. Um, That and some organizations are just too big to fail, right? So yeah. if if you have your your foothold across a bunch of organizations and it's really hard to rip and replace tools mm-hmm. like this, you're kind of too big to fail, right? So just some some interesting thoughts there. Uh, you know, it's it's tough because we're not really attacking these vendors and it's hard to do these things. There's a lot of really 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 smart people in the world that find these vulnerabilities, but um, but just like those vulnerabilities that last for nine months, that's not on the exactly. vendor anymore. Right. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, cool. Moving on. Yeah. So this next one, um, it's from the Hacker News, uh, and they basically were making a call out to the Emotet stuff. So the article is called "New Report Uncovers Emotet's Delivery and Invasion Techniques Used in Recent Attacks." Um, what was fun about this is it seems like Emotet added some some additional kind of capabilities. But the structure of the attack was relatively kind of the same as what you'd expect for most payload-driven phishing attacks. Um, you know, you see your Excel um, documents with possible macros or in your PowerShell Visual Basic. They did do a call out to the, uh, you know, MSHTA, which is, um, you know, commonly used to run scripting languages and, and you know, HTML or HTMA applications. Um, so, you know, they, they made some calls for some slight changes. Um, but one of the things I really liked was they did a great graphic of the execution chain. Um, they showed similarities across the, the attacks they saw. I think they saw a mention of 10,235 Emotet payloads from March to June in 2022. Um, and in the chain, it was um, all of them began with Excel, and then they kind of pivoted into either CMD um, or MSHTA, but then led to CMD or PowerShell later. Um, and then, you know, some of those things. So it seems like they had the same similar components in the execution chain. And that's when we talk about behaviors, that's like exactly what we talk about, right? Is, you know, they, they attackers sometimes mature, you know, what they'll do in an attack or they'll add some 
capabilities, you know, you hear about these new capabilities, but the core structure of what they do is kind of built on their own little framework, whether they meant to or not. Um, and it's, you know, what they're comfortable with. And so an example of, you know, those three different chains, you know, we have in our community, you know, Hunter platform, you know, the, the package is called Microsoft Office Parent of Suspicious, you know, Lolby or Lay of the Land Binaries, which is just that Excel kicking off, you know, CMD, PowerShell, you know, MSHTA and some other things that can be used by attackers and just seeing that parent to child relationship. Um, it just, you know, Emotet's been out for how long and they're still using some common behaviors that make it to where you should be able to hunt for it and find it relatively ease. So that part was kind of cool to me. Yeah, I mean, from inception over here at Cyborg, I think we've updated Emotet like four or five times, right? So yeah. it's, it, and it's not, it's not major, uh, major changes, right? We're, we're tweaking and adjusting how we're finding the, the new behaviors, but the core of it's the same. So um, it is interesting to watch the progression of this particular uh, threat. Um, and their timeline's really, really telling too. So they, you know, they become a loader, they start using ISD and some other um, malware families. Uh, they start to track around um, global events, right? Uh, you know, the COVID theme, the IRS theme emails, um, utilizing things like Cobalt Strike that, that kind of uh, started becoming the, the go-to kind of loader or C2 capability. Um, uh, so it it has been interesting to track this in the flow, but again, if we're looking at behaviors to holistically change how you behave, again, we've mentioned this before, it's tough to do. You can add habits, you can add you know adjustments to those behaviors. So that's why hunting in this manner is so important because we used to track the IOCs when we first started and there were a bunch, right? And so well, if you're- I'm thinking like, think about yeah. IOCs for Emotet that exists. And we've had this one hunt package for, you know, I don't know how long, but it's persisted over, gosh, hundreds of thousands of Emotet IOCs. I would go higher than that, man. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's been right, around. Yeah. And I remember seeing this list we used to collect just to say we've yep. got Emotet covered, right? Yeah. 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 So that, that one to that many is so important. Um, so much easier to actually operationalize than having to continue update watch lists and blacklists and all these things rather than just hunting for that behavior. So. Um, yeah, I think we're almost running up on time. We have one more uh, news article we'll try to get through real quick. Yeah. Um, so this one's also from Hacker News. Um, it's talking about Microsoft improving their mitigations for that unpacked exchange server vulnerability that we've mentioned before. Um, so this isn't particularly, uh, this hasn't been addressed all the way by Microsoft, the, uh, the proxy not shell. But this is has updated the ability to actually implement a URL rewrite rule to track the uh, the uh, exploitation attempt of the exchange server, and Did it looks like it's the, uh, PowerShell they provided too. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's kind of to um, uh, automate the protection and the implementation of that. The steps weren't very complex from an exchange admin. Should be able to put that in place very quickly. Um, but they did give you the ability to mitigate quickly. They mentioned that this might be addressed on Patch Tuesday. Um, that was yesterday, so maybe next week. Uh, so we'll see how Microsoft continually tracks this particular exploitation, but 
it doesn't look like they're this is a mitigation it's not fixing the actual threat so i'm right. curious to see how they progress and, and uh, attack this moving forward yeah so when i was looking at it the i did dig into the powershell they provided and it did look like there was some uh msi type installs they were pulling down as part of that so i was kind of curious what those tied to because you see the mitigations is changing some of the how it handles things but i don't know if there are dependencies or other things that they kind of say if you have these you can do these other mitigations that automatically get rolled out um right. so i didn't dig too far but it was a little more than just simple configuration stuff so i know people could be pretty hesitant unless they're really worried like it's something i'd want to test myself um but one thing i know we've talked about this attack before and how it you know is these multiple vulnerabilities kind of stitched together kind of like the the proxy shell and now the proxy not shell but it just makes me think of something that i think is really important for people to wrap their head around and, and have you ever heard of the pwn to own competition uh not no not specifically so pwn to own competition they do every year and it specializes in how to break out of sandboxes either hypervisors oh, or the gotcha. sandboxes yep. and web browsers and stuff like that and every single time that i've actually paid attention to it they've never used a critical or high vulnerability mm. these guys will put stitch together low level and medium vulnerabilities and they'll do three or four or five of them whatever it is and they'll put them in a row and then that's how they'll get privilege ex escalation or execution and it just kind of brings to mind like some, you know, companies approaches, let's get rid of the criticals and highs, which is obvious because they're the easiest probably to exploit. Or if you do exploit those, you get the most access, like there are more risks it, associated, but you it, have to manage your medium and lows. And so is that because there's such a high visibility on those highs and then Microsoft will put out these mitigation tools and these fixes oh, yeah. for those high priorities, but the lower ones are, We'll get to them when we get to yeah, them, right? Yeah, it's, it's tough yeah. because, I mean, the tools you use to manage these, they, it's you know, traffic light. It's like, hey, red, take care of red. Now you're in the yellow state. Well, yeah. if you don't understand where vulnerabilities exist on the system, you know, you kind of run into, well, this one gives you this kind of information. This one lets you use that information. I mean, it's hard to stitch those together. I know that's why some attackers are good because they can do these things, right? Yep. And pen testers, yep. they can do these things. Um, but it's still very good to just not disregard things and just like blindly accept risk because something's medium or low. If something has enough medium or lows on it, that would almost make it a high in my mind. Like if you're a certain threshold of medians, maybe you should address and try to get that threshold lower. It might not solve that specific risk, but it puts you closer to that bar. But something right. I like to bring visibility to, right? It's a really yeah, cool competition right. if you look at their the stuff, but yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Really good point. Um, yeah, I don't have any more notes on this. I think this is going to be an ongoing kind of tracking to see how this progresses. Yeah. Um, but yeah, another fun podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks everyone for joining the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast with Cyborg. Um, enjoy talking to everybody and hope that you guys all are able to take something away. And then we will hear or, or maybe see from you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.